Good morning. So glad you're here this morning. I like the smaller, more intimate crowd. Smaller my scene. I'm a complete introvert, so if we have any introverts out there, I understand the pain of huge crowd things happening around you. Um, I generally like to hide, run and hide. I'd rather pick up chairs than um, most things, than try to small talk uh, with somebody. Um, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you stayed uh, here this weekend. Uh, how many freshmen are here this weekend? See, I, I'm most proud of you guys. It is good that you stayed. It's, it could be easy for you to want to go right back home, but it's good. It's good for you to stay. The more you can stay, the better you'll be. Um, it's good for you to be here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name's Keevan. I'm on staff um, with CCF. My wife, Stephanie, is back there. Um, we work with the international ministry here at Truman. And so if you've been to the international house, it's right next to Magruder. Uh, we have events there on Friday nights. And uh, this is our 20th year doing it. So we have done this as long as some of you have been alive. Um, but uh, we absolutely love doing what we do. Because um, it, uh, it's a joy to meet students from all over the world. And it's a joy to learn about their cultures and to uh, learn uh, from them as well. And it's a joy to have an opportunity to show Christ to them. So with that too, like those of you who have helped out with our Walmart trips, I just want to say thank you. Uh, you may not realize what a blessing that is to these students, um, but it is a huge blessing to them. It really means a lot to them. And so it may seem like a simple act of, oh, I just put them in my car and drove them to Walmart. It's, it's much more than that. It is a, a way to love on them, to show Christ to them. Um, and it's also a way that a lot of them are first introduced uh, to the body here. And a lot of times they're first introduced to who, who Jesus is. And so don't, don't ever take it for granted what that means. Uh, and so thanks for helping us uh, serve our international students in that way. Um, also, Stephanie and I have, I should introduce, uh, we have two kids. They are grown up. Uh, our son, Ethan, is 24, I believe now. He is married uh, in Illinois, serving as a children's minister there. And our daughter, Emma, is 22. Um, she is a fourth-year student at Missouri State University, art major. Um, and so we, we're empty nesters, although now Stephanie has Fozzie, the dog, so... Um, our life is a little more exciting again uh, with Fozzie in the house, um, but we, uh, we understand a little bit about you guys having worked with college students for 20 years, having a couple of students that went through college, so if you ever need uh, good advice from someone who could be like a mom or dad or grandpa, whatever it is, um, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, that's what we're here for. Um, this morning, we are looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, that's what we're looking at this semester and all the things it means for our lives as followers of Christ. Um, and today I'm going to be focusing on the passion narrative of Christ from the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you've never heard the term passion narrative, uh, it's, it, it basically means primarily the accounts that are in each gospel um, of the suffering and the death uh, of Jesus. And scholars generally treat the passion narrative sections as beginning in the garden uh, when Jesus prays and up and through his burial. And as a staff this summer, uh, we read through the gospel narratives over and over and over again. 
Uh, Derek's not kidding when he says, I will try to drown you in scripture. Um, and I love that about Derek, that he has us in God's word a lot. And so we, as a staff, we t- each for two weeks, we would have one of the gospels and we would just read through the gospel narrative for that, for that during that two weeks. And then we would kind of discuss it, talk about it a little bit, and then we would switch to a different gospel. So we read through all four of the gospels, some of them a couple times. And, um, and so if you would like to read through the gospel narratives, um, this semester, I actually, in going through them, I was like, I'm just going to print it off and see how, how long of, how much I'm actually reading here. And so it's like 30 pages for all four Gospels. Um, but if you would like a link to a PDF of this or a paper copy, I can make paper copies for that as well. It would be good for you to, to be reading through uh, these Gospels as, as we talk about them. I think uh, God will speak a lot through spirit uh, through that so if that will help you it's not always easy for me i'm not the type of person that's like it's a struggle to to read the bible every day and and uh to be in the in god's word it's not it's just not something i do real easily um and so sometimes it's good for me to like have a oh here's here's a section of scripture that other people are going to be reading through also and uh, that helps me out so if that helps you uh let me know so we're in, in Mark, and I gave my sermon one title because it only needs one read. And uh, I've called this the suffering servant because uh, I think that is what Mark uh, really shows Jesus as in his gospel. And uh, after reading through the, the gospel narratives this summer, I think I like Mark's account the best, and I think mostly I liked it because it was the shortest. Um, I started with Mark in the summer, and then I, I ended up with Matthew and John at the end, and Matthew and John are just so long. <laughs> they just go on and on and on, and, and I really love just how concise and, and short Mark is. Like, it just speaks to me. Um, if I was to, you know, I would never write a gospel, but if I was, it would probably be pretty short <laughs> and concise. Um, Mark is thought to be the very first gospel that was written, okay? So it was written before Matthew, Luke, and John. And in fact, a lot of people believe that Matthew, Luke, and John kind of took parts from Mark uh, to write their own Gospels. Um, and uh, Mark was, is also thought to be have been written not for a Jewish audience, but for the Roman audience. Um, and so um, I, read, I read that the, for the Romans, the Romans highly valued just common sense. Okay, And also for the Romans, their religion had to be something that was practical. I think I would have made a good Roman. I like common sense. I like practical things. And, and that's, what, that's what you see in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I have this little Bible handbook, which if, you ever, if you're not real familiar with your Bible, um, a Bible handbook is really helpful because it just goes through what each book is about and kind of the main themes. And, and it's, it's usually just a couple of pages and it gives you an idea of, of what the, the Gospel is about. And so I, there's a book uh, called What the Bible is All About by Dr. Henrietta Mears. And in it, he says this about the Romans. He says, the Romans had no interest in tracing beliefs back to the past. Legal genealogies and fulfillments of prophecies would leave them cold. They might have said, I know nothing of your scriptures and care nothing for your peculiar notions. But I should be glad to hear a plain story of the life of this man, Jesus Tell me what he did. Let him see me for just as he was. 
And that's exactly what Mark does in his gospel. Mark's only 16 chapters long. There's no introduction. In fact, the only introduction that he really has is verse 1, where it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. That's Mark's introduction. There's no genealogies like Matthew. There's no birth stories like Luke. There's no flowery poetry word songs and things like John. It's just, this is about Jesus, the Messiah, and he jumps in and, and he tells, tells us about him. Um, and he mainly focuses on the miracles of Jesus. There are only four parables in all the gospel of Mark. Uh, mostly it's about what Jesus did. He focuses on portraying Christ as the humble but perfect servant of God. And you can easily break down Mark into two sections. Uh, chapters 1 through 8 is Mark showing us Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Mark chapters 9 through 16 is Mark showing us Jesus, the Messiah, carrying out his mission or going to the cross. Um, and so it's very simple. And shockingly, and this is a little spoiler alert here, uh, for Mark, he shows us a Messiah that did not come to conquer the Roman Empire, as a lot of the disciples would have hoped for. Like when his Jesus disciples were following him, I am certain that most of them were looking forward to this. If this is the Messiah, he is going to run the Romans out and set up his kingdom, and it's all going to be good and great. And, and that's not the Messiah that, that Mark shows us. He shows us a Messiah that came to suffer and die as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so Mark writes to show us, though, that Jesus' death on a cross did not negate his claim uh, to be the Messiah. In fact, rather, it affirmed it. In fact, his faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness to this mission becomes the model for all discipleship. You see it in Mark 8, 34, when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And so in honor of Mark, I will try to be concise, practical, and full of common sense. Let me start off by asking you this question. Have you ever been afraid of what lies ahead of you? I think probably most of us probably have. Probably if, there, if this is your first year here at Truman, maybe the fear is being away from home for the first time. Kind of being on your own. Um, not being in that place where you grew up and maybe were comfortable, felt safe. Uh, if you're a second or third year student, maybe the fear is about, well, what is this major I'm ch I have chosen? Um, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life as a job? Can I get a job with this major? A lot of fears go uh, with, with school and with that type of thing. Or if you're a fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh or however many years it takes some of us, uh, maybe the fear is, wow, what's next? I've, I've kind of gotten comfortable here at Truman. I've got this routine down. I know what life is like in a semester-by-semester -semester basis, but now that's about to end. And so the fear is, what, what's next? Where, where am I going to go? Am I going to get a job? Um, and when I think about a time in my life when I was afraid about what lied ahead of me, it was a moment on an airplane. Okay, and I've told this story before, so if you've, uh, the staff members are going to have heard this before. But my wife Stephanie and I, when we were dating and then when we got married, uh, early in our married life, we talked and prayed a lot about the possibility of serving the Lord uh, on the mission field. And after we'd been married about five years, uh, we had been serving at a church 
uh, in Indiana, and uh, we had an opportunity to go to Taiwan. And so suddenly it was more than just talking about something. You know, it's easy to say, hey, I'll go live in another country. Uh, but to actually do it was a little bit more difficult. Like when the reality was starting to set in, um, there was a lot of fear that uh, was starting to kind of boil up inside me because there were so many uh, unknowns. I had never actually left the country um, before. Uh, and so like the idea of just moving <laughs> out of the U.S., out of my, where I was comfortable, out of where everybody understood exactly what I was saying, and living in a country where people spoke a different language and I had, had no idea what it was like there, uh, there, I, there was a lot of fear in that because there were a lot of unknowns. And part of the reason it was a little fearful was we were very happy where we were at. We were at a wonderful church in Indiana. They were very good to us. They loved us. Uh, there was no reason really to leave. And yet we had prayed about this and God seemed to be opening the doors for us to do this. And that seemed pretty clear. And, and so we decided uh, that we would go to Taiwan. And so we said goodbye to our church uh, that we had served at. We packed up all of our stuff and stored it in a friend's barn. Uh, we said goodbye to our families and we took our, our one-year-old son uh, and moved to the other side of the world. Okay, and, and some, of our, some of our grandparents, some of the grandparents weren't real thrilled about this either. Um, one-year-old grandson were taken away. What are you talking about? You're gonna live on the other side of the world? That, that shouldn't be right, you know? And so, we, but we did, we packed it all up. And I can remember that one moment that really stands out to me where the fear, I think, was at its highest. Like it just, it's one of those things where like I try to push it aside and just, you know, ignore it. And it just, but it just, I, you know, it just keeps building. And I can remember that one moment was when we were at the airport. Uh, we had gone through security. Uh, we we're at the gate uh, for our plane. And uh, Ethan's one, so he's just toddling around at this point, and, uh, and it becomes time to board the plane. And, and Stephanie and I decided, because Ethan's one, I'm going to get on the plane first. I'm going to take the car seat with me, and I'm going to strap it into the seat in the airplane. And Stephanie was going to wait to the last possible second, because a 13-hour flight with the one-year-old is like about four days. It feels like four days. Um, and so... I get. I remember walking down that tunnel toward the plane, and I'm carrying Ethan's car seat, and I have my carry-on, and I can I can just feel the fear, just rising. I can I can just my breath is getting you know short, and I'm like, oh, what am I doing? And then I remember stepping onto the plane, and it just like the fear is like through the roof at this point. Because I'm, I'm like, I'm on the plane. There's, there's no going back. I'm literally, I'm on this plane. I'm flying 13 hours to this country I've never been to. I know, I know zero of the language. Um, what, what am I doing? And I remember getting my seat, and I got the seat, Ethan's seat strapped in, and I just sat there and, and prayed and, and basically cried out to God saying, God, please let this be the right decision. Uh, please let this not be a huge mistake, God. Please calm my fears and my nerves. Give me peace and, and help my mind to get off of all the things I don't know and all the things I can't control. Um, and, uh, and God answered that prayer almost instantaneously. 
which was amazing. Uh, because I open my eyes and I look down the long aisle of the plane and I see Stephanie. It's, it's the last moment. Everybody basically is on the plane except for Stephanie. And, and here she comes. She's got Ethan in one arm uh, with the jacket kind of slung over her arm with him there. And she's pulling her carry-on bag through the little narrow aisle. And she's going the way only Stephanie would go. Full throttle, with great passion, with like, I'm on a mission. You're not going to stop me. And she's coming through, and and uh, she's a mom, and she's got her kid, and this is going to be a 13-hour flight, but it's all going to be okay. And and it would have been fine, except that with the jacket that she had hanging over her arm had a big, heavy little zipper on it, and she literally is hitting every single person in the aisle seat all the way back in the head as she goes by. Bam, bam. Bam. Every head is snapping around and looking to see what just hit me. And, and uh, that is exactly what I needed at that moment because one, I was sliding down on my chair going, oh no, she's going to sit with me. Um, but, but two, I was like, oh, I'm not alone in this. I've got, I've got this crazy girl that's going with me on this adventure and really probably my only job in life is just to keep her from killing anybody else. And <laughs> And it really just kind of took away all those fears and those unknowns. And, and, uh, and I was like, okay, uh, we got this, Lord. We can do this. And so what does is, what is facing our fears have to do with Mark? Uh, well, when I read through Mark, uh, one of the things that kept coming to my mind as I read was the fact that Jesus himself, he knew what was ahead of him, Right? Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. Um, there, there was not any unknown for him. He knew what was, he was there for. He knew what was ahead. He knew what was coming. And, and so we face fears because of the unknowns in our lives. But I wonder if Jesus faced fear because of what he knew that was ahead. And sometimes, I know a lot of times we think, especially when you're your age in college, like, man, God, if, if you could just give me a little glimpse of what my future is, that's going to make me feel a whole lot better. But I sometimes wonder if that's really true. Because if we actually saw what our future was, that might cause even more fear in our lives. Um, and, and so I, I, it just really stood out to me that, that Jesus knew what was ahead of him. And, and, it, and it made me wonder... Was Jesus afraid? Was the Son of God afraid? And I think we see uh, the answer to that in Mark. Jesus told his disciples three times in Mark. He told them that he was going to be arrested. He told them that he was going to be handed over to the chief priest, that he was going to be put to death, and that three, after three days he would rise from the dead. Okay, we see that in Mark 8. Actually, in Mark 8, Peter or Jesus finally says to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter gives the right answer. He says, you are the Christ. And he is like, you are right, Peter. And then the very next thing he tells them is that he is going to suffer and die and be put to death and rise again. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, which is pretty bold for a student to take their teacher aside and rebuke them. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You do not know the will of God. Okay, so that's Mark 8. In Mark 9, again, Jesus predicts and tells them what's going to happen to him. And again, the disciples don't understand. And in fact, they're just afraid to say anything at all. 
They just kind of like pretend like he didn't say that. Okay, and but and then in fact the ne- very next thing is they start arguing among themselves about who was going to be the greatest. <laughs> so Jesus says, "I'm going to go die," and they're like, "Okay." So who's going to be the greatest among us? You know, like they're going to they're arguing about this, and I'm sure Jesus is like, "Do you not hear what I'm saying? Do you not understand what I'm trying to tell you?" Do you not understand what I'm trying to prepare you for? And then again, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, he says it again. He goes, see, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And the gospel writer of Mark tells us there's no response from his disciples the very next thing we read about is James and John pulling Jesus aside saying hey can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your glory they were more concerned about their positioning and their position than they were about what Jesus was trying to tell tell them about what was going to happen to him and I wonder I wonder if Jesus was just wishing man I wish one of these guys would understand I wish one of these guys would get it. Have you ever felt that way when you were afraid? You just wish somebody would understand the fear that you're facing, that you're going through. And so we see our Savior Jesus. He, he sets his face to Jerusalem. He knows full well what is ahead of him, but still he's walking faithfully to Jerusalem. He's walking to his death. He's surrounded by his disciples, and yet he probably feels very much alone in this moment. And I think the part of the passion narrative that really, I think, shows the emotion and the fear that Jesus experienced was after the Passover meal with his disciples uh, when he goes into the garden to pray. And I want to read uh, that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 14 um, or on your phone. Um, by the way, I'm a big advocate of real Bibles. Um, I know phone Bibles are great, but if you uh, don't have your own Bible and you would like one or you don't can't afford one or anything, please ask me. I would love to get you a Bible. It's, I don't know, I'm, I'm old school, I'm 51, you know, so like, I just feel like we're staring at screens all the time. Maybe it's better to have a real Bible. So if you would like one, just come talk to me. But we are in Mark 14 and it says this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will and he came and he found them sleep sleeping and he said to Peter Simon are you asleep could you not watch for one hour watch and pray that you may not enter enter into temptation the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak and again he went away and prayed saying the same words and again he came and found them sleeping For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. 
And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, was with him, a crowd with swords and clubs uh, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they, the disciples, all left him and fled. From the very beginning, we see Jesus very much aware of exactly what was going to happen. We see him telling his disciples in, in very much detail, they're going to spit on me, they're going to mock me, they're going to crucify me. And, and he's telling them what's going to happen. One of you is going to betray me. He says, all of you are going to scatter and leave me. And Peter, of course, was the one, I'm not going to deny you. And he says, yes, you will deny me three times. And, and, and you see, all these things are going to happen. He knew what was ahead. Um, he knew how it was going to play out. And yet he still was in control. Philip Yancey uh, said this. He said, The mind of the world, the most sophisticated religious system of its time, allied with the most powerful political army, empire, arrays itself against a solitary figure, the only perfect man to have ever lived. Though he is mocked by the powers and abandoned by his friends, yet the Gospels give the strong, ironic sense that he himself is overseeing the whole process. He has resolutely set his face to Jerusalem, knowing the fate that awaits him. The cross has been the goal all along. Now as death nears, he calls the shots. So on the one hand, we see Jesus very much godlike. He, he knows he's in control. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's ahead of him. But we also, in these verses, see the humanity of Jesus in the garden. I mean, do you hear the emotion from him? when he is praying to his father. Verse 33, it says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. These are two Greek words. The most common one um, for troubled means, or just, uh, troubled means to be sorrowful or grieved. But the other word there is one that's a powerful expression and it indicates great mental stress or anguish. Uh, some have even translated it to be deeply depressed or struck with terror. I mean, this is a strong emotion uh, that Jesus is experiencing. I mean, words probably can't even begin to describe what he is experiencing in this garden, knowing the suffering he was about to go through in the next hour. I mean, the Son of God struck with terror, having a panic attack, trying to breathe, crying out to God. I think it's probably something all of us can relate to. Something all of us have experienced at different times. And Jesus didn't hide these feelings from, from his friends. 
from his disciples. Peter, James, and John were with him, and he tells them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. It could be literally trans- translated, stay awake with me, <laughs> which is exactly what they don't do. It's like, just, just stay awake with me. I, I'm going to pray. I need to pray. And, and they fall asleep. And he goes a little farther, and he falls on his face, and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. It's possible. Everything is possible with God. He says, all things are possible for me. Remove this cup from me. And I think Reed told us a couple weeks ago that the cup is the figurative expression in the Old Testament for the judgment and the suffering at the hand of God. He's like, take this away. Remove this from me. And he praises this three times. Chuck Swindoll in his book, The Darkness and the Dawn, says, when some would question how the Son of God could be truly human, let them look at this scene in Gethsemane. Here in the darkness of the garden, his humanity gushes out. I am so grateful that this dark scene has been preserved. Otherwise, I fear we would look upon the Lord Jesus as some kind of divine robot who went through the motions of redemption without the deepest of feelings involved. Just another divine appointment. But it was not like that at all. Jesus was not only undiminished deity, he was also in every way true humanity, subject to the identical feelings that we have. Whether it be joy or sorrow, fear or confidence, exhilarating ecstasy or sheer agony, he has felt all of those things. And seeing the humanity of Jesus in the garden is a great encouragement to me. And I, and I hope it's an encouragement to you as well because it shows me that we have a Savior who can identify with our struggles, with our weakness, with our fears. We have a Savior who also has set the example for us for when we face those fears. Jesus didn't stop his prayer with, remove this cup from me. He finished the prayer with, yet not what I will but what you will. The example Jesus gives us is one of submission to God. It's one of trust in God. It's one of obedience to God. And the fact that Jesus faced his fear, his anxious thoughts, his loneliness, and continued to walk toward his death in obedience and complete submission and trust in God should be an encouragement to us in our own lives. So here comes the practical part. In your walk with God, don't try to do it alone. I may be an introvert, but I still need people. I can't do it by myself. We need one another. Surround yourself with people. That, we need people. That's why God gave us the church. All right? We, we find a few close friends that you can share your struggles and your difficulties with. Secondly, open up and share how you feel, even if they may not understand it completely. Even if they don't really get it or have never experienced it themselves, be willing to open up and share your fears and your struggles with one another. Three, be forgiving. Be forgiving. The people around us is going to hurt us at times. The church is going to hurt us at times. 
But remember, we're not perfect either. We're going to hurt our friends sometimes. And we're going to mess up. And so we have to learn how to forgive. And, and, I, and I think you see that in Jesus with his disciples. It could have been real easy for him to say, oh, forget it. You just don't get it. But no, he continued to bring them alongside. He continued to, to reach out to them and teach them. I love the passage in Hebrews. I want to close with this. It says, Therefore, since we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has gone into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We all must live our own lives. Each of us has our own story, our own journey. Uh, we all struggle in many ways. We all need mercy. Uh, we all need to find grace to help us along the way. And the good news is if we're willing to hear it, if we're willing to accept it, if we're willing to believe it, is we have a Savior who has gone before us and who has shown us the way. The message of Mark is come and see the suffering servant. Mark 10:45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much uh, for your Gospels. I thank you for Mark and what he shows us about Jesus. I thank you so much that, that Jesus was willing to continue to move forward step by step, even, uh, even, even in the face of fear, in the face of death. And I pray, Father, that each one of us would learn uh, to not try to go this life on our own, but would would find people uh, to be around us that we could be open and honest with, that can walk with us in this journey, uh, that can be an encouragement to us, that can listen, uh, that could give advice at times. But God, help us not to do it alone. And we thank you that Jesus um, was willing to do uh, what he did for us and to set the example of obedience and trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.